congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, little children, perhaps your parents have taught you what to do if your clothes ever catch fire. Do you know what to do? Maybe you learned it at school. You stop, drop, and roll. I hope it never happens. I hope you never have to use it, but it's good to know, isn't it? Well, today, we learn from Lord's Day 44 how to deal with a problem which is even worse than your clothes catching fire. How to deal with sin which tries to grab onto you and never let go. And the law tells us how to deal with that. It says, stop, seek, and strive. Those are three things that we learn in this Lord's Day. So what is the stop part? Well, the stop part is the first part of this Lord's Day. The 10th commandment is kind of a catch-all. The commandments 1 through 9 are pretty specific in their areas of human life and worship that they deal with. But then the 10th commandment is very, very broad. And it basically says this, don't do anything against God's holy will. And so in the 10th commandment, God focuses on the very root, on the very beginning of sin. In fact, the 10th commandment doesn't just tell us to stop sinning, but it even tells us, don't even get started. Don't even begin. The 10th commandment teaches us to be absolutely careful and deliberate in the way in which we live. To flee from all sin and to look for and seek all righteousness. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if we actually took that seriously? What are we doing with the coronavirus? We're very careful. We keep our distance. We follow the instructions of the public health authorities. And that's good. That's important because we don't want the disease to spread. We don't want the vulnerable people to get sick and to be in pain and perhaps even to die. And that's why we've stopped hugging our grandmas. It's a hard thing to do. But we do it because we love them. And we're careful with that invisible little virus which can cause so much damage. We're so careful. Look at us here. We're not singing. We're avoiding each other, sitting far apart from people that aren't in our home unit. We're so careful. Wouldn't it be awesome if we were so careful with sin? If we were so deliberate in fleeing from sin, in making sure that sin can't get a foothold in our life, that it can't get its foot in the door, that it can't even get near us. Well, that's what the 10th commandment is teaching us, to have that kind of approach to sin. Because sin is a far worse pandemic than any virus you can come up with. Sin has a 100% fatality rate. 
And so the Tenth Commandment says, don't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet anything that is your neighbor's. And the key here is the word neighbor. There's nothing wrong with desire. There's nothing wrong with planning, with saying, hey, I would love to work towards this or that. I'm going to save up to buy myself a, myself a, a bicycle, or I'm going to save up to buy a car or, or a house. There's nothing wrong. God put that in us to, to desire, to work, to try to get ahead. But then we're desiring things which, under God's blessing, are things which can be given to us in his grace. They're not our neighbors. We're not coveting what belongs to someone else. You see, the key or the essence of the sin of covetousness is that I desire because I am discontent. I am not satisfied. So if you look at the 10th commandment, you may may wonder, well, we just had the 7th. The 7th was about adultery. Why does the wife come in here again? Wouldn't that be adultery? So why is she mentioned in the 10th commandment? But the, 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 the mention of the wife in the 10th commandment is not in terms of sexual lust, but it's in terms of being discontent with what God has given you. Perhaps God has not given you a wife. And then the 10th commandment says, don't sit there grumbling in your heart saying, why can't I be like him? He's got a wife and I don't. Or maybe you do have a wife. But maybe you look at somebody else's wife and say, wow, I wish my wife was like her. His wife bakes. My wife doesn't. And so there's this discontentment. I wish I had a wife like his. Or I wish I had a pickup truck like his, or I wish I had a shop like his, or a job, or a house like his, or I wish my hair was like hers. Why do I have to have this hair that God gave me? Why can't I have a family like hers? Why can't I have what she has? Why can't I be like she is? And so what are we saying when we covet? We're saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. God, you have no idea how to run the universe. You clearly don't know how to do your job. You don't know how to take care of me, God. You don't know how to satisfy me with your steadfast love and with your gracious provision. I cannot find my satisfaction in you, God. I can't find satisfaction in your will, in your provision, in your presence, in your word, in your spirit. I am not content. I am not satisfied. What the Bible teaches us is that cultivating this sin, which is the root of all sins, is a very, very dangerous beginning. It sets us up for more sin, and eventually it leads to death. And you can see that if you open your Bible to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And you see there in verse... 
14, what the apostle says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And the translation here could be by his own covetousness, by his own coveting. Then desire or coveting, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, the word for desire here in verse 14 and verse 15 is the same word in the Greek New Testament as the, the word used in the Tenth Commandment in the Old Testament in the Greek translation. It's desire or or covetousness. It's not being content. And you see in verses 14 and 15 here of James chapter 1, you see a picture, you see a, a, a kind of a slow-mo, a series of still shots of what happened at the garden, right? You see Eve looking at the tree, and there are two words used there in Genesis chapter 3 for her desiring the fruit. It's desirous, it's desirable to her eyes, and it's desirable to give wisdom, it's desirable to her mind. And so she reaches out and takes it, covetousness, desire, it conceives, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the way it worked with Eve, that's the way it worked, has worked ever since Eve, that's the way it works in our lives as well. So we know, don't we? We know what starts us on the way to sin. If you open up your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. If you just take a look there, because in, in, in Deuteronomy there are two words used for, for covet. Deuteronomy 5, verse 21, that's the 10th commandment. Uh, you shall not covet, that's one word in the Hebrew, your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. Those are two different words. They both mean the same thing. They mean to desire, to covet. And those are the exact two words which are used in Genesis 3 to describe what Eve did. So let's flip back there so we just have it in our minds again. Genesis 3, you remember Eve in front of the tree. And look at verse 6 of Genesis 3. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the first word. That word's used in the 10th commandment. Delight or a desire to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired. There's the second word, to make one wise. Those two words, delight and desired, in the verb form, are used in the 10th commandment. It's a clear connection and reference to the first sin. So what happened there? Well, Eve looked at the fruit. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desired to, to make one wise. My eyes want it. My mind wants it. My heart wants it. I want it. God has not given me enough. I want more. So there's discontent. And that gave birth to sin, and death. What are we saying when we covet? We're saying, I'm not satisfied. God doesn't take care of me. God doesn't give me enough. God is not enough. And so covetousness is connected in the Scripture with impurity and pollution. If we turn to Ephesians chapter 5, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 5, and look, look where the apostle sticks in the word covetous. Look at the, look at the company 
that covetousness keeps here in 5 verse 3 of Ephesians. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. There's something foul about covetousness. It's not just a, an innocent little desire. There's something that's polluted. It's like a contagious disease. It spreads. It infects. It pollutes hearts and lives and relationships. And besides being a pollutant, it is idolatry. Look at Ephesians 5 verse 5, and just a few verses later. Well, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, see, that's the same company again, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So covetousness is foul and contagious and it pollutes and it destroys, but it's also idolatry. How does that work? How can covetousness be idolatry? Well, it's because it works this way. I, I need this so badly that I need it more than I need God. You see, that thing that I'm coveting, I'm not satisfied with what God provides, so I need that thing, even if it's not mine to have, even though God hasn't given it to me in his providence. And so we say to that object of our desire, whatever it is, we say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. We don't say it to God. We say it to the object of our desire. It might be a job. It might be a thing. It might be a relationship. We might say, God, I know you tell me in the Bible to marry in the Lord, but I want that unbelieving boy because I need to be married. And so... That's more important than listening to you, God. You see how it's idolatry. It's putting something or someone in the place of God. And so, I will break God's commands. Because I want this. Because I need this. Because it is as a God to me. I cannot live without it. So much that I need to turn my back on God to embrace this thing. And what does Paul say, Ephesians 5, verse 5? He says, watch it. Don't be a fool. Because covetousness is idolatry. And idolatry means that you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is serious stuff. Living in the sin of covetousness means Deliberately choosing hell over heaven. The devil over God. And what the 10th commandment is telling us is don't even start down that road. And many years ago in Ontario, I had a, a family that I used to visit from time to time. And when you pulled up at their house, there was one parking spot where nobody dared to park. It was the parking spot of the patriarch of the family. And there was a sign, a simple little sign in his parking spot. And it just said this, don't even think about it. And it worked. Nobody 
park there except him. And that's what God is telling us in the 10th commandment. Don't even think about it. Don't even think about sinning. Don't even start. You've got to hate sin. You've got to love righteousness because I am good and my will is good and what I provide for you is good. So embrace that. Desire that with all your heart. Well, there's the problem, right? I mean, it all looks very nice. We should always hate sin. We should delight in all righteousness. But we can't. Fallen man cannot hate sin. Fallen man cannot love righteousness, cannot delight in obeying God. It's just simply impossible. It's like asking a man with broken legs to run a marathon. You, he can't. And that's why when David pours out his soul to God in Psalm 51, he not only asks for forgiveness, for washing, but he also asks for a new heart because the old one wasn't working, was it? The old one was leading him to desire sin, to covet his neighbor's wife. And so what does, Paul, uh, what does uh, David, that is, say in Psalm 51 in verse 10? After asking for forgiveness for his sins, he says, God, I need heart surgery. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I need a heart that hates sin, God. I don't have one of those. I need a heart which loves righteousness. I don't have one of those, and only you can give it to me. Was that what you were asking for? Or do you think that because you were born to a Christian, in a Christian family, that you just automatically have one of those? What do we say every time we read the baptism form? We say that our children, they have a credible privilege of being covenant children. But what else does it say right at the beginning of the baptism form? That our children are conceived and born in sin, and they need to be regenerated. They need new hearts. Do we ask for that in our prayers? Do we say, Lord, please work in the hearts of our children. Work faith and strengthen faith. Because asking someone who has an old heart to hate sin and delight in righteousness is like flogging a dead horse. You can flog a dead horse as much as you want. It's not going to run. It's not going to bring you anywhere because it's dead. And asking someone with an old heart, an unregenerate heart, to hate sin or to love righteousness will work just as well as trying to ride a dead horse and flog it to move faster. It's not going to work. You know what a problem is with a lot of our evangelism? We talk to people that are not in Christ. They they don't know the Lord Jesus. They're living in their sins. And we, we start from the wrong end. We say, hey, why don't you live like us? Why don't you be faithful to your wife like Christian men are and faithful to your husband like Christian women and and why don't you go to church and why don't you be careful with your money and and why don't you live a holy life and why don't you just be like us and love God and love righteousness and hate sin well we've skipped a step haven't we because they've got the wrong type of heart don't they 
Before we get to the hating sin and loving righteousness, they need to be regenerated. And that's why, look at question answer 114. The catechism says, but can those converted to God keep these commands perfectly? Catechism understands that you've got to be converted before this is even a possibility. And then it continues to say, well, you know what? Even when you have a new heart, even when you are converted, even when you are regenerated, all you can do is little baby steps, a small beginning of new obedience. It starts to to work its way into all of the aspects of your life, and you start beginning to obey not just one, but all the commandments of God. It's glorious. Praise the Lord, but, but it's imperfect. Even the most holy cannot say, you know what, I have kept the law of God perfectly last week. Can't do it. We can't keep it perfectly. And yet God tells us to preach it in the church reads the law Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And we go through the law year after year after year in the catechism. And the law says you need to hate sin with a perfect hatred. You need to love righteousness and you need to live righteously in a perfect way. Not even the slightest thought should fill your heart to sin against God. Not even the slightest disobedience should appear in your life. Why does God want the law to be preached so strictly if we can't do it? Even the holiest cannot do it. Why does he have it preached so strictly? Well, God wants to drive us to the answer. He wants to drive us to Christ. The law says, stop. Stop sinning. And even with a new heart, I can't stop sitting 100%. So I need to move on to the second word, don't I? I need to stop. But because I can't stop by myself, I need to seek. And that comes through in 115, question answer 115. I need to seek Christ. What do I need to seek in Christ? I need to seek forgiveness of sins in Christ. His blood washing away my sins. And my baptism tells me that he promises to do that. Every time. He's never going to say, you know what, you asked too many times this week. You have to wait till next week. There's not enough forgiveness left. Jesus is always ready to forgive. And your baptism guarantees and seals that for you. You seek, we seek forgiveness of sins in him. That's not all we seek. We seek righteousness in him as well. We look for that in him, that perfect righteousness that we need. And so we we study the perfect law. We we study the flawless law. We study the the holy law. It reflects the character of God. And as we study it and, and mull over it and reflect on it and meditate upon it and we learn about it, the deeper we get into the law, the more we plumb the depth of the holiness and the righteousness of God, and and the more we learn about our sinful nature. And that just grows and grows. Both of those things, they grow over the course of your Christian life. So a Christian who has been a Christian for 80 years is going to have a deeper sense of God's holiness and a deeper sense 
of his own sin than a Christian who is only six months old in terms of his or her Christianity. So the 80-year-old Christian, the Christian that's been a Christian for 80 years, is going to see things in his heart that he would consider awful or terrible or reprehensible, things which a new Christian wouldn't even notice because he's still very immature in holiness and in righteousness. And so the more we gaze into the law, the mirror of the law, the more we learn about our sin, and that drives us more and more to seek forgiveness and to seek righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we seek forgiveness, as we seek righteousness in Him, then we long more and more to be like Him. We long, oh Lord Jesus, I don't want to be the one living anymore, but I want you to live in me. I want to be transformed by your Holy Spirit from glory to glory after your image. I want to reflect your holiness and your grace. And so the law teaches us to stop, to seek, and then finally to strive. And that's the last part of question answer 115. Were you surprised when we read that? You see what it says there? So that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Striving. That doesn't sound very reformed to tell people they've got to strive. They've got to work hard. It doesn't sound very reformed. Are we supposed to strive? Is that what the gospel teaches us? Doesn't that smell like we're doing something? We're contributing? Well, brothers and sisters, sovereign grace means that God gets all the glory and salvation, and he does it all from, from, from A to Z. It's all of him, from him, to him. He gets all the glory. No one's in heaven saying, wow, God, thanks for the help, but I, I also did a lot, of good, a lot of work to get here. Nobody says that. It's all from God. It's all to God. Soli Deo Gloria. God gets all the glory. But sovereign grace does not mean that we get onto the salvation train and we sit down, show our ticket, and say, well, wake me up when we get to heaven. I'm just going to relax now and do nothing. Well, we read 1 John chapter 2, and then we read on into chapter 3. And what did we see there? We saw that the apostle speaks about practicing righteousness. He mentioned it a bunch of times. To make a habit, to do. The word practice there is just the word to do. To do righteousness. Righteousness is something we have in Christ. He gives us his righteousness. But then when we have Christ's righteousness, that righteousness does something. And it moves us to do things by his power. So how does the gospel work? Well, the gospel works this way. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus takes our sins, puts them on himself. Jesus takes his righteousness, puts it on us. That's justification. We are considered innocent, righteous, holy 
perfect in God's eyes because of Jesus, because of his work. And in that justification, there is no striving. There is no works. There's nothing we did. All we did was say, wow, what a gospel. What a savior. All we do is believe. All we do is embrace the gospel. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Not one gram, not one milligram of human effort. It's just sola fide by faith alone. But then there's another aspect to the Christian life besides justification. That's sanctification. That is the the growing in holiness, the growing in Christ-likeness. And that is a process which happens, which begins when we are changed by the Spirit of God, when we're given a new heart, when we are justified, when we come to faith, and then it continues right through our whole life until we come into eternal glory. And in sanctification, the believer is not passive. It is, like justification, a sovereign work of God. Sanctification is also a sovereign work of God. All of the aspects of salvation are sovereign work of God. But sanctification, he graciously does this work. He works it in us by his Holy Spirit. And so he moves us to delight in things that we didn't delight in before. He moves us to desire good and holy things that before we didn't desire. And he works by his spirit in us a holy longing to be more like Jesus. That longing doesn't come from us, but the spirit works it in us. And so the striving here in Lord's Day 44, in the last part of question answer 115, the striving here is not the striving of works righteousness. It's not saying, well, I'm going I'm to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make myself acceptable to God through my merits and through my effort and through my works. That's not what it is. It is a gracious striving. It is a striving in the power of sovereign Grace, look what it says. So that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving. That's the source of the power. That's where the transformation comes from. That's where the sanctification comes from, from the power of the Spirit. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul recognizes that that's how it works. And so striving is a holy and a biblical call. The word striving in our translation, the ESV, is often in a translation of a Greek word which is the root of our word, agonize. And the agony, the agonizing in the Greek, had reference to the single-minded, deliberate focus and striving of athletes in the arena, where they put all of their energy, all of their attention, all of their preparation, all of their focus 
For instance, on, on running the race and getting to the finish line. You, you aim to win. You aim to overcome. It's a singular focus. Well, Paul, although, well, let's just say the apostle uh, says this in Hebrews chapter 12. The apostle writes in Hebrews chapter 12 using this kind of a, a picture. See what he says. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. So what's the apostle saying? He says, you know what? You want to run the Christian life. It's like a race. And you've got to get rid of the distractions. You've got to get, get rid of the things which drag you down. Get rid of those little sins which kind of cling to you and hold you back. You've got to focus on the race, on the finish line. And then later on in the same chapter, Hebrews 12, verse 14, the apostle actually used the, that, that Greek word which we, describe, which we translate as strive. That sounds kind of like in agonizing. He does that in verse 14, Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's something we need to strive for. There's room for striving in the Christian life. What does Jesus say? In the Gospels, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Don't blunder around on the broad way which leads to destruction. Focus. Be deliberate. Walk the narrow path which leads to life. Or, or run the narrow path which leads to life. Well, how do we do that? How do we strive for holiness? How do we strive to be more and more like Jesus? Well, certainly not in our own strength. We know that. And that's why the catechism puts it the way it does. We strive how? While praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's where the power is. If you're a lamp and you want to shine, you can try really hard, but you're never going to have one lumen of output until you're plugged into the wall outlet, right? You need to be plugged into the grid. And so a Christian, a Christian can strive all he wants to grow in holiness, to reflect the image of God, to be more like Jesus, but it's never going to happen until the Christian is really plugged in to the power, united to Christ by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then drawing on that power and pleading, look at it, Praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's where the power is. That's where the connection is. Pleading with God. Oh God, work your power in us. And if that's the way we live, then what's the promise? After this life, we reach the goal of perfection. You reach the goal of perfection. Isn't that awesome? Look at, look at what the apostle says in, in 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 7. If we turn to the second letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 4 and verse 7. Look what Paul says about this. He says, I have fought 
the good fight. And he's using those, those Greek words for striving. He's saying, I have agonized the good agony. I've done the fighting. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's the promise. A life of striving in the power of the Spirit, pleading with God to, to work in us the holiness of Christ. And at the end, what do we get? We get a crown. Because Jesus will crown his work in us by his spirit with his righteousness. That is the goal of perfection. So are you doing this? Are are you stopping, seeking, and striving? Is that how you're dealing with sin? That's what the law calls you to. Stop. Seek. Strive. Because all of this is only in and through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And how do you hook into that power? How do you plug into it? It's by prayer, isn't it? You access this grace and this power by praying to God. Constantly and with heartfelt longing. This is so important, brothers and sisters. Maybe you're struggling with a certain sin and you've tried everything. You've tried to change your schedule and you've tried to change things in your life and you've tried to work hard at at saying no to the sin and you just can't get rid of it. And what you need to realize is that sanctification is not something that works with our effort. We need to be driven to prayer. We need to say, Lord, you know what? In my heart, I want this sin, and I can't change that by myself. Do some heart surgery on me, Lord. Change my heart. Change my desires. Change my will. Have mercy on me. Take away the root of it all. See, it's not, I don't want to just stop doing the sin. I want to stop having the desire to even think that the sin is something attractive. And the only way that we can deal with sin, brothers and sisters, is first of all getting onto our knees and crying out for the power of the Spirit. Constantly, with heartfelt longing, a life of sanctification is a life of deliberate prayer. That's the Christian life. A deliberate life of deliberate holiness is only possible in a deliberate life of deliberate prayer. So if your prayer life is anemic, if your prayer life is like, Lord, thank you for this food, forgive us our sins, amen, over and over and over, if that's your prayer life, then you are not going to see a lot of growth and holiness in your life. You're not going to see yourself being changed by the power of the Spirit of God to be more and more like Jesus. You're going to go limping along if you move at all in the way of sanctification. An anemic prayer life is cutting off the power and the glory and the grace of God. An anemic prayer life is 
unplugging the lamp and expecting it to shine. And so that's why we're moving in Lord's Day 45 to deal with prayer. The catechism is very, very well set out here. In the next few weeks, the church is going to focus on prayer. And we're going to be pleading with the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. The law says, stop, seek, strive, and let that drive us to our knees to seek God in prayer. Amen.